0: I don't know about you, but uh, it seems like most funerals I've gone to, someone's going to read Psalms 23, someone reads Psalm 23, and it's kind of just repeated uh, in this kind of monotone way, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, everyone kind of says this thing, and no one really wants to think about what they're saying, and, and I remember the first time I was at a funeral when I heard that uh, those verses read, and I remember thinking to myself, What's the issue of being in the valley of the shadow of death, and why would you bring that up when someone just died, you know? No, seriously, I thought, how, how does that work? And, and it really kind of hit me that it, it's, it's one of these things where when it comes to death, we just, we just, we don't want to talk about it. It feels distasteful. It's, it's uncomfortable. We don't want to bring the issue up. But we're in a reality here where we're coming to the end of Jacob's life, that Jacob is, is going to die. And not only that, we're also in the first part or last part of chapter 47 in a situation where the famine that the Egyptians have been in, that the Canaanites have been experiencing as well, that famine's coming to an end, but it's getting more and more severe. So you have a whole group of people who are, in a real sense, facing death. There's, there's a reality here that if, if God doesn't intervene, if He doesn't keep His promise, they're, they're going to die. And so, basically what happens is we, we look at this text and we think, you know, we have to face the reality of death. We can't just kind of skip over it or spiritualize it. It's a reality. I mean, the statistics are pretty impressive. One of every one person dies, you know? I mean, we have to face that. And I don't mean that to say callous. I'm really not trying to make light of the subject. It's just the opposite. I think it's important for us to recognize that when the psalmist says in Psalm 23, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, he's not talking about almost, you know, in in a, in a deathbed experience. He's talking about the reality of this life is always in the shadow of death. That's a reality for us. It's a factor for us. James says our life's but a vapor. It's here, it's gone. And so how do we respond to that? How do we deal with the difficulty or the issue of death? What do we need to do in the face of death? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So pick it up in verse 13. Here's what we see. It says, Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan for the grain which they had bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them their bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So we're in a situation where this famine is getting so severe that, that, that there's no money left. And this is kind of what happens in these situations. You might have, you know, 40 pieces of silver in your possession, but now because bread is so scarce, food is so scarce, that 40 pieces of silver made have used to buy 400 loaves of bread, now it buys one. And so just to feed your family, you've got to give all the money that you have left, and eventually, guess what? There's no more money. And so they are thinking, what are we going to do? And so they think all we have left to trade for bread, for food to eat, is our livestock. We can't feed our livestock to keep them going anyway, so we might as well trade them into the one who holds all the grain uh, in, in all this uh, land. And so that's what they do. They, basically, the Egyptians, they give up all their possessions because they want to stay alive. And then in verse 18 it says, And when the next year had ended, they came to him the next year, and they said to, to Joseph, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our, the herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? For, and we and our lands will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us sea that we may live and not die, that the land may, be, uh, may not be desolate. Then Joseph brought all the, bought all the land uh, of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the, uh, the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. And so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into cities for one, uh, from one end of the border of, uh, of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate the rations which the Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands." So they run out of money, and so they give all their livestock so they can stay alive. But here also, here's what they're doing. They're giving up their independence. They're willing to become servants or slaves of Pharaoh. They're willing to give up their land, the ownership of their lands, to make sure that they don't die. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this account, and I, I feel uncomfortable with it. Maybe it's because I've grown up in the West, maybe it's because I'm American and the whole idea of home ownership and independence means too much to me. I don't know. But I feel uncomfortable with this, at least politically, like hey, what's going on here? But look at how the Egyptians responded to Joseph, first twenty-three. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have brought you and your land I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you. You shall sow the land, and you shall and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one fifth to Pharaoh Four-fifths shall be your own, and as, uh, as seed for the field and for food uh, for those of your household, as, and as food for your little ones. Look how they said, look what they said to him. So they said to Joseph, you saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of the Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's." Now, we could debate about whether or not this was a good thing to do politically. And I think one of the reasons we look at this and we might feel suspicious is because we don't like the idea of giving anybody that much control. I, I, you know, I don't care how powerful Pharaoh is, I don't want him to be the one who decides what I can eat. I don't want him to be the one who decides. Okay, what happens with my land or my life? I don't want to give up that much control. And it makes us uncomfortable. And as we've talked about, as we've, we've been kind of going through this last section of Genesis and seeing Joseph as this, this one who shows us that if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, we're going to have to do so through many trials. But also Joseph shows us a great picture of Jesus. That this reminds us of a truth. And it's a truth that we should keep in mind, especially as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is the truth. We need to surrender to God's plan. We need to be in a place where we recognize that when Jesus calls us as people who know that one day life is over, that that this existence is just a preparation for the next life, that we need to live according to His plan. And listen, listen to what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 16. I hope it's on the screen. Yeah, there it is. Good. I'm going to have to go over here to read it. Sorry. Matthew chapter 16. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will what? Lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Egyptians, just to save their lives, just to save their physical existence, would give up all possessions, would give up their independence, and would praise Joseph for the opportunity. See, how much more us... As those who recognize that this life is but a vapor, as those who recognize that we are going to stand before this Jesus face to face, how much more should we respond to him when he says, Listen, if you want to follow me, I'm requiring everything? Now that's hard for us, isn't it? Because we think, I can't trust anybody with everything. That's too much. You know, that's what's so gracious and so amazing about Jesus or about our Lord. He knows we're like that. He knows that we have a hard time trusting Him. He knows that when He calls us to give Him full reign, that we resist that. He's patient with us. He knows that we are, as the psalmist says, we are but dust. But He doesn't change the standard. He still says, look, listen, if you're going to, be, if you're going to walk the way you need to walk, if you're going to be prepared to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're going to need to surrender to my plan. You see, one of the things that, that you learn the longer you walk with Jesus is you learn that there is no greater authority. There is no more benevolent authority, no more trustworthy authority than the authority of Jesus. That, that There's no one better to trust, including ourselves. Maybe I should say especially ourselves. This is what he calls us to. So these guys celebrate, right? Because they see our lives have been have, have been uh, preserved. They've been saved by this surrender uh, to this plan, by giving Pharaoh control. And we pick it up in verse 27. And it says, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they... And they had possessions there and they grew and multiplied exceedingly. What a comparison to what the Egyptians are going through. Joseph's making sure that the, his people are taken care of. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so that the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And so Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Now, understand what's going on here. Jacob's coming to the end of his life, and he knows he's going to die really soon. And so he's like, look, I don't want to be buried here. This is not the land that God promised me. I want to be buried in the land of promise. And it's interesting because you get a sense here that Jacob's faith, his his relationship with God is becoming increasingly more important as he gets closer to death. Because even the way he kind of deals with Joseph, remember Joseph is his his son, his favorite son, he deals with Joseph and he says, please deal kindly and truly with me. And it's interesting, he uses language that is the same kind of language that God uses in making a covenant with us. And it's almost as if he's saying, okay, it's almost as if he's thinking, you know what, God's covenantal loyalty is the standard for all contracts. God's covenantal loyalty is the thing that I'm really wanting. And he's saying to Joseph, trying to pull something out of Joseph, Joseph, listen, you know how God is towards us, please Please be faithful like that towards me. Please make sure that my body gets buried with my fathers, gets buried in the land that God's promised us. And Joseph swears. Well, then in chapter 48, verse 1, we read that, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. He took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself, and he sat up in his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. I will make make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you, notice, as an everlasting possession. So here we have, after he's... Joseph's got, or Jacob's gotten Joseph to promise that he'll bury him, in, bury him in the promised land. Now, when Joseph comes back with his sons, he, he wants to kind of talk to Joseph. He wants to kind of remind Joseph of this God who's been faithful to him. Jacob's going to testify to his son of the faithfulness, of the trustworthiness of God. Now, I love this because he, he brings up this, he uses this phrase again God Almighty, El Shaddai. We've talked about before the fact that he's the God of, uh, of the, prov- the provision, the God who makes sure everything's there. But he also specifically brings up this issue of God, he appeared to me and he blessed me and he said to me or promised me and then he reminds him of that promise to be a fruitful nation. So, so that when he's talking to his son, when Jacob's talking to his son about the faithfulness of God, he's reminding him this is the God of covenant, the God who pursued me, the God who made me a promise. This is really important for us to understand. It's important because uh, what, what Jacob's wanting to do here is he's really wanting to remember and be a reminder of the very character of God. And This is really important, especially in our day and age, because when we say God, we don't all think the same thing. If you talk to somebody about God, they have different ideas of what we mean by God. You could say to somebody, do you believe in God? And they go, oh, yeah, I, I believe in God. And they might be thinking like the force, like Star Wars or something. No, seriously. Or, 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 or they might be thinking, you know, one God of many. Or they might be thinking Allah. Or they might be thinking one of many kind of religious ways about God. But Jacob, when he wants to talk about God to his son Joseph, he's very specific. The God of covenant. The God who pursues us. The God who promises us. In fact, it's interesting, if you skip over to verse 15 and 16, we're going to see when Joseph begins to, uh, or when Jacob begins to bless Joseph and his sons, look how he refers to God there in verse 15 when he prays. He says, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walk, notice the God who fed me all my life long to this day. Interesting, that phrase, fed me, it, could, it should be actually translated, it'd be better translated to the God who shepherded me. And it's the first time in scripture that God's referred to as a shepherd. One who is intimately involved with those that he's with, one who is leading them to safety, one who's making sure they have all that they need, one that protects them. But he also knows what he says in the first part of verse 16. He says, "The angel who has redeemed me from all evil." That's how he addresses God. The messenger who brings redemption, the God who redeems. Now, again, this is important because this is what's happening. Jacob's wanting to make sure Joseph gets what God he's talking about. He he, he understands. He wants to make sure his son understands the God that he served. Stay with me. Now, look at verse 5 of chapter 48. It says, and now your two sons, this is, of course, uh, Jacob speaking to Joseph. He says, now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, uh, as Reuben and Simeon they are mine. We're gonna come back to that. Think, don't forget that. Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came to Padan, Rachel be, uh, died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And then Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And then Jacob says, bring them to me, uh, please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so they could not see. Then Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel says to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has shown me your offspring. Now, Jacob's blind at this point, obviously, he's going blind at this point, Uh, uh, but it's important to understand what's going on here. The things he's doing, he's doing intentionally. And it's interesting here that as he brings forth, as he asks Joseph to bring forth his grandchildren, basically, Jacob's grandchildren, that he is expressing thanks to God that he doesn't just get to see Joseph, but he gets to pronounce this blessing on on his grandchildren. He's really kind of wanting to make sure Joseph's hearing this. Then verse 12, notice, Joseph brought them from beside his knees and bowed down with his face to the earth. Joseph shows honor to his father, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand uh, uh, on his left Manasseh's left hand, his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding notice guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. Then notice how he prays for these guys. Notice how he prays for his grandsons in verse 16. He says, Angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, plural. Let my name be upon them, plural. and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude uh, in the midst of the earth. That's probably better translated, the midst of the land, as in promised land. Now, he's doing this intentionally, okay? no, he is kind of blind. He doesn't see very well. Joseph's bringing his sons for a blessing from their grandfather. He purposely brings the firstborn. That's what you would do culturally. You'd bring the firstborn. The oldest one would get the better blessing. Their better blessing would come from the right hand of the person who's going to bless, okay? And so there he is, the old guy. You know, kind of, I can just see him on his bed, kind of hunched over. He's got his hands like this. And Joseph brings the sons, and right at the last minute he does this, whoop, he crosses his hands, he switches, and puts his hands in their head. And he, he pronounces a blessing on both of them at the same time. Now when this happens, look, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's uh, head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. But truly, your younger brother, uh, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Now notice, here's what he's doing. Jacob is purposely... Putting Ephraim, who's the younger, as the privileged firstborn. Now remember, in that culture, in the far near, in the in the ancient Near East, uh, they would basically the firstborn was this place of preeminence. This place of he got a double portion of uh, of the inheritance. He was the one who would. Um, uh, basically lead the family from that point on when the patriarch passed away. He would be the leader of that family. And, and so the thing is, what's going on is Jacob is purposely, listen, he's making Ephraim, who's one of his youngest grandkids, and even younger than uh, the youngest son of Joseph, he's making Ephraim, putting him into that position of being the firstborn. Remember what he said earlier when he talked about that uh, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine? We're going to see next week how basically and, Reuben and Simeon lost, lost their blessing because of their character. They lost the, the, the good part, at least, in the blessing uh, from their father because of their character. And, and, and so basically he's kind of like saying, I'm replacing my firstborn with Ephraim. Now this is really important, okay? Because what's, what's going on here is Jacob is wanting to show Joseph something that's crucial to our understanding and our living Life in the shadow of death. He's wanting to make sure, listen, he's wanting to make sure that his son, Joseph, knows and understands the very character of God. And so when he talks about how God's been faithful to him, it's a reminder. When, he's, when he talks about, gives glory to God for how gracious he's been in letting them see his grandkids. And when, listen, he makes Ephraim the firstborn, he's wanting to point something out to Joseph about the character of the god that he serves now one of the things that's important for us to recognize is when the bible talks about firstborn and the privilege of the firstborn the firstborn privileges don't always come out to the person who's first out of the womb the firstborn just means the person who's going to have preeminence and often in scripture that goes to somebody who wasn't the firstborn god specifically does that as he brings forth his covenant as he unfolds his plan to redeem people This is why the Bible speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of creation. It doesn't mean He's the first created one. Jesus isn't created. He's not created. Jesus the man had a created body, obviously, but God the Son is uncreated. He's eternally God the Son. So when He's called the firstborn of creation, it basically is a reference to the fact that He has preeminence over creation. The Bible, in fact, calls Him the Creator. But it's also this, listen, listen to what, uh, how God deals with it in Jeremiah 31 verse 9. This is a good example of it. When God is talking to the Israelites about how he's going to bring a remnant back to himself, listen to what he says. He says, they, that's the remnant, shall come with weeping and with supplication I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For Notice he says, for I am the father, a father to Israel, and Ephraim, is my firstborn. You know what this tells us about God? It tells us that, listen, the privileged position is not something that is a birthright to us. It's something that's a gift to us. We get that privileged position with Christ because, because God has given it to us in Christ. Christ earned it for us. He's the firstborn because we're in Christ. We get that privileged position. What I believe Joseph is trying, or Jacob's trying to show to Joseph, is that listen. You need to understand this about God: the position that He gives is by grace. It's by grace. You see, if we're gonna, if we're going to do well, living in the shadow of death, yes, we're gonna need to surrender God's plan, but also we're gonna we're gonna need to remember God's character. Let's not forget how dodgy Jacob was. He was the younger brother who tricked his father into getting the blessing, remember? And here he's going, okay, that was bogus, but God still does graciously give the blessing to the younger to show that it's of grace and not of works. It's of grace. Guys, listen. The closer I get to death, and I'm hopefully a ways away, though my cholesterol's a bit high. The closer I get to death, The longer I live, the more I recognize, man, if it's not for God being who God is, I could never stand before Him. There's no way. The more I know how God is, how holy and perfect God is, the more I realize, man, if God is not exceedingly merciful, if God has not provided a way that He can declare me righteous, I'll never be righteous. It'll never happen. If God is not that good I'm in trouble. But this is the whole point. God is that good. <laughs> and this is the whole thing that, that Jacob wants his son Joseph to see. God is that good. You've seen his power. You've seen his sovereign hand over your life. You need to know, even me, who's Jacob the deceiver, he's been that faithful to you. He's been that good to you. No, no, let Ephraim get the blessing. I'm doing this on purpose to show you God picks us on purpose. Not because we deserve it, but because he's so good. In fact, this is really kind of the thing he's willing to encourage him. And in verse 21, he says, Then Israel says to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. He says, But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of our fathers. Moreover, Jacob says to Joseph, verse 22, I, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, we don't know for sure what he's referring to. But apparently, there was some situation where Jacob actually got possession or a deed to a part of the land of Canaan uh, through a battle. And he's saying that special piece of the land that he already possessed, I'm, give, I'm deeding it over to you, Joseph. What's he doing? Jacob's trying to assure Joseph that God still has a future with him, that his relationship with God is not based on his relationship with him. He doesn't need his dad to have a relationship with God. He just needs God. God's done that. He's wanting to encourage him. Listen, What's glorious, what's glorious in your life, Joseph, is not just that God's used you to save a nation from perishing. What's glorious about your life is not just that you see that God has restored you to me and your brothers. What's glorious about your life is the God who's in it. That's what you should glory in. This is why Jeremiah also says this in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. It's not there? Okay. Here's what he says, something along this line. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he knows me, says the Lord. That he knows me. That's what he says. This is what he wants. This is what God wants us to understand. Listen, what else is this life but for us to know the God who makes all life, for us to know the God who's promised us eternal life? This is why the scripture says, guys, that for us who are in Christ, for us to live is Christ, and to die is what? It's gain. We know that last enemy has already been defeated. Now, don't get me, don't get confused here. I'm not saying that I have a death wish. I'm not saying, oh, I just want to die. I'm not saying that. And there's something, something un- unhealthy when we do feel that way. And we've probably all felt that way at one time or another. But I am talking about this reality that, you know what? Death has lost its sting. You know why? Because I know God, <laughs> I know the one who conquered death. I know what he's like. He's as good to deceivers like Jacob. Deceivers like me, he's as good to him as he is to guys like Joseph who seem to do no wrong. We need to remember the character of our God. Lastly, only two more verses, chapter 49. And Jacob called his sons and he said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Interesting. Interesting. Jacob's going to pronounce blessings on his sons, and we're going to see next week some of them don't seem to be so positive. But it's, in, it's important we recognize here that when, what Jacob's doing is he's not just speaking to them as a father; he's speaking to him as a prophet. When he said, "I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the last days," he said, "I'm going to, I'm going to prophes- prophesy over you. I'm going to tell you what God's going to do." So he's speaking to him as a prophet. But also, it says in verse 2, he says to them, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Now, notice here, Jacob refers to himself by both his name given to him at birth, the name that speaks of his nature, and the name given to him by God, the name that speaks of covenant. He recognizes that he is still Jacob, deceiver, heel planter, but also he recognizes that he's Israel, prince of God, governed by God. He sees the, the dual duality of his natures. Now, what, what's this got to do with us walking in the valley of the shadow of death? If we're going to do well, we're going to need to hear God's word. See, what we're going to read next week when we get into the rest of 49 and the rest of chapter 50 is we're going to see in, this, in these blessings and these prophetic pronouncements that Jacob says over his children that some of these things are very hard to hear, so much so that when Jacob dies, his brothers are thinking, I wonder if Joseph's going to kill us because we are, our wickedness is exposed. But what is going to be evident is, is that God is bringing his word through Jacob. God's speaking through Jacob so that his sons hear what they need to hear to prepare them to receive the very mercy of God. If we're going to do well as we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we've got to hear God's word. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Do we got that one? Cool. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And he's speaking, of course, the context of the Jews of old who did not enter into the promised land, even though God had told them in His Word, it's for you, they didn't believe it, so they didn't enter in, they were disobedient, and they suffered the consequences of it. And this is what he says, For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes to whom he must give accounts. In other words, he says... Don't be a disobedient to the Word because it's the Word that shows us, exposes us for who we are and shows us what we actually need to do to be saved. Don't be disobedient to it. We need to hear God's Word. We... Well, the Scripture calls... The scripture calls um, death the last enemy. The last enemy. An enemy that's already been conquered. The Bible records in the book of Revelation there's a time when death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. Death will be no more. God doesn't want us to fear death. He wants us to come to a place where we know Him who conquered death. That we would see ourselves as having been crucified with Him, having died with Him, being resurrected with Him so that we can walk in newness of life. Listen how the psalmist talks about Psalm In Psalm 23, listen to how Psalm 23 ends. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." (laughs) That's not a psalm for someone who's passed away. That's a psalm for us who are still here. That's for us. His rod, His staff can bring us comfort even in the face of death. His goodness and mercy us; they are always right on our tail. We can be assured that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jacob could face his own death thinking about passing on the blessings to his sons, thinking about the character of God, wanting to exalt the character of God. Why? Because he knew the God who had made a covenant with him. He knew the God who had pursued him and promised him. Jesus, on the day before he was crucified, on the night that he was crucified, he took a bit of cup, uh, uh, he took a cup of wine that was a Passover cup, and he said to the disciples, This is the blood of the new covenant. This is my body, he said, with the bread broken for you. And he talked about this new covenant that God would make with his people this new covenant that wasn't based on them keeping law but based on receiving by faith what God provided for them through his death and resurrection if you are under the fear of death if you recognize that when you die you're going to face God and be judged and that makes you afraid and the There's good reason for that to make you afraid. You need to know that God has provided a way for you to know that death has lost its sting. If you will admit that you have sinned against God, and if you will confess that to Him and put your faith in what He's provided for you through Jesus' death, And through Jesus' resurrection, you will be able to experience death losing its sting. You'll be able to know that you have eternal life. And you will be able to say, yeah, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God wants to save people. Jesus came to conquer sin and death so that we would not have to fear it anymore. So that as we walk in the shadow of it, we think it's lost its sting for one to respond to him.